So last week, Todd preached uh, from the first part of Acts 21, and, uh, and I was one that was just immensely blessed, and I loved sitting under the Word and just allowing God to speak to me. It was just a great privilege uh, to be here and to be a part of that, and just hopefully you all enjoyed that as well. Uh, so we were sitting there last night, and uh, Caitlin looks at me, hey, Dad, what part of Acts are you preaching tomorrow? And I said, well, the second half of 21, the first part, of, or the, the first, really, the balance of 22, it, it's basically Paul gets arrested again. And she's like, oh, really? Imagine that. Uh, and uh, so here we are, and we're going to enter into another time where Paul uh, gets arrested, put in prison, and we're going to see what God does through that. Uh, one commentator said that it, it's estimated that Paul may have spent upwards of 25% of his time as a missionary, so like post-conversion when, when he is sent out, about 25% of that time he's spent either arrested or in prison. Uh, just an interesting idea, you know. Paul goes out to the, to the known world, but he spends a fourth, upwards of about a fourth of his time uh, arrested and in prison. But Why? Uh, you know, Todd spoke about and saw from Acts 21 last week that it was to fulfill the calling with which God gave to him. And so we're going to pick up in the second half of 21, starting in verse 27. We're going to look at the rest of that chapter, and then we'll pick up uh, as we go through the rest of uh, the story in 22. So uh, this is God's word. He is speaking to us. Would you just reflect that by standing with me uh, as we long to submit ourselves to his will and to his word? So Luke writes this as the story goes on. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that's Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, uh, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know, do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And uh, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Sicilia, or Cilicia, uh, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when uh, there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. We'll pick up the rest of 22 from there, but let's pray. Uh, God, uh, be with us as we just hear another story of an uprising against Paul as he preaches. Uh, and Father, why, uh, why would you allow these things to happen? Why would Paul continue to put himself in harm's way? Father, how would that carry on the gospel of your grace? And so give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Father, I pray for, for those who have never surrendered their life to Jesus. Those who today have never called out to the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you move in them? And would, they, would today be the day of salvation for those people? And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So in the United States, we have some pretty amazing first responders and rescue personnel. Uh, we, also, we have per, uh, police officers. We have fire departments. We have the armed forces. But one group that doesn't get much attention is the Coast Guard. Uh, the Coast Guard uh, doesn't get much, much press. Uh, well, that was back until back uh, in 2005. The Coast Guard gained plenty of notoriety as their offshore ocean training became needed inland. Uh, inland uh, when Hurricane Katrina ravaged New Orleans and the surrounding areas. And just so that you know how old you are, that was 15 years ago, okay? All right, uh, anyway. Hurricane Katrina ravages this area, and during that catastrophe, the U.S. Coast Guard turned its skills uh, in on our own land. And specifically, there was this group called the Coast Guard Rescue Swimmers. So if you've seen any of those amazing rescues of the Coast Guard where a helicopter comes in and a guy jumps out of the helicopter or is lowered down into this raging uh, water, those most likely are the Coast Guard Rescue Swimmers. There's other groups that do it, but they do it all the time. And they would go down under, under roofs or go out in, into uh, a tree that's uh, you know, surrounded by water, pulling people out to their rescue. And one rescue swimmer recalled, he says, nothing, as they came into this area, nothing was above the water. We would see steeples, we would see roofs of houses, and if you look closely, you could see telephone poles that would give you some indication of where the road was, but there was nothing else that you saw. The entire Gulf Coast from Mobile, Alabama, to some point west of New Orleans was blacked out. Could you imagine flying in and just seeing nothing but little specks of buildings above the water. And their heroic uh, uh, sacrificial efforts were summarized by one of, the, one of their swimmers, John Hall. He says, I volunteered to put myself in harm's way for somebody that I don't know. So I'd better be ready when the call comes in because this is my calling, he said. And, and I don't take it lightly and I never shortcut it. 
Because the motto of the Coast Guard rescue swimmers is, so others may live. It's his calling. He puts himself in harm's way so others might live. That sounds exactly like the Apostle Paul, right? Nearly 25% of his missionary time is spent arrested and in prison. Why would he continue to keep going to these cities? Why would he go to Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit has already told him that in every place that he goes, harm and difficulty and arrest and imprisonment await. Why would he go when in, ch- in chapter 21, his friends are pleading with him not to go? He would go so that others may live. The rescue and the mercy of God uh, is true for Paul, and it's all over this book of Acts. Yes, it's the move and the expansion of the gospel, but how does the gospel expand is through the mercy and the grace of God. It's God's healing coming to people. It's God's healing coming to cities, into regions, into churches. And and Paul does uh, does this. He puts himself in the middle of this activity so that others may live. So we're going to see later in our passage that Paul talks about his conversion. Remember, he already talked about it in Acts chapter 9, or Luke recounts his conversion in Acts chapter 9. But here we get Paul explaining his own conversion in chapter 22, and then we're going to see it again in Acts 26. And so in this day and age, for us, paper is just, is nothing, right? It's a piece of paper. Okay, kids, go get a stack of paper. We need to do an assignment, right? And they go run and get some. Well, for, for the ancient times, for Luke to actually record what was going on in, the, in these times, papyrus, in which they wrote on, was very expensive and very scarce. And so you would think if something is repeated, you know, hey, we got the whole story in chapter 9, and Paul's going to talk about it here in chapter 22, he could just write a little sentence, and Paul talked about his encounter with Jesus, or Paul talked about how he came to know Christ, or Paul talked about his conversion, but that's not what he does. He devotes another half of a chapter to recounting Paul's encounter in transformation that came from seeing Jesus. And he does the same in chapter 26. And so repetition means something in the Bible, especially when it can get shortcut with a summary and it's not and it gets played out. Why is this here and what does God have for us today? Let me, let me say to you, that, that this is in front of us, yes, so we can understand God's move through the life of Paul. But I will say to you, this is here for us so that we will understand the message of God's grace. It is God's free gift given to you, but it only becomes a gift when you receive it when you actually respond to the grace of God. Have you responded to him? That's what we're going to see in our passage today. And so uh, before we get to Paul's uh, just recounting of his rescue, how do we get there? We get there by Paul challenging typical thought processes. Okay, so he's coming into, uh, into Jerusalem. He spends seven days uh, kind of performing a Nazarite vow that we saw last week. Basically, uh, 
showing the Jewish people that he was one of them, that he honored uh, their tradition, that he honored what was being taught in their synagogues, in their temple. And he returns there knowing that he is most definitely going to be arrested. But what does he do? Look at verse 28 to 30 again of the passage that we just read in 21. There it is. It says, men of Israel, this is people crying out against Paul. Men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple uh, and defiled this holy place. Verse 29, they say that, that they mistakenly thought that one of his companions was brought into the temple. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up And the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So what was the accusation against Paul? That he was speaking against, and they say three things. He's speaking against the people, meaning the Jewish people. He's speaking against the law, uh, the, the scriptures that God had given his people. And he's speaking against the temple, the gathering place of worship of God's people. Now, In reality, Paul wasn't speaking against those things, but he definitely was speaking differently about them than what these people understood. But he was just merely showing that the fulfillment of all these things is fulfilled in Christ. And that was unheard of to these people. They didn't like it, and we see their violent reaction against it. We see it especially when they, they see Paul with a friend of his, Trophimus, from, the, uh, from Ephesus. They see that he's a Greek. They see that he's a Greek, and they assume that Paul brought him into the temple with him. But isn't it interesting? Can you hear the elitist view of these people in Jerusalem? Just, they feel like they have a hold on the things of God, and they're like, Paul even brought this Greek into the temple, as if they're a second-class citizen, unless they, they are the undesirables, that they would have no claim on the things of God. How, Paul, could you do this? It's interesting. I think when the gospel starts to move, and, and yes, in, in uh, Jewish law, uh, there, was a, there was a whole uh, r- rituals of, of cleansing yourself that the Greek people were not invited in, yet... I think it goes much deeper in the work of God in people that we don't expect him to work in. I think God's people can sadly find ourselves in this place where we expect God to work in people that we expect him to work in. And when God works there, we're like, cool, great. But what about when God works in people that we don't expect? The people that we would say, whoa, 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 I don't know about that. It's the gospel pushing against our typical thought process, the gospel pushing against our typical way of thinking. And it does it here, and Paul does it here, and these people go nuts over it, and the entire city wells up against him. So that's what gets him arrested. Then what does God have for us is that we, and we see Paul, becoming witnesses to the mercy of God. Because Paul, when he addresses these people that just beat him and just, uh, just uh, stirred up a rage against him, he wants to speak to them. And we get that starting in verse 1 of chapter 22. 
That'll be up on the screen uh, as well. Brothers and fathers. He even shows deference to the people that just beat the pulp out of him. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, they became more quiet and then he went on with his defense. And so he stands before them as a witness to the mercy of God. But to do that, he's going to explain who he is. And the first aspect of, of his own uh, experience is he's going to explain his own blindness. Now, we're going to see him go physically blind in a second. But we're, uh, we're, he's going to explain his own spiritual blindness. That's his first idea of what it is to be a witness to the mercy of God. Pick up in verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew. I'm born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way, And I drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus." The first thing he, do, he uses as a defense before this crowd that wants him arrested and thrown in prison is his blindness. His physical blindness after an encounter with Jesus, but the physical blindness points to his, phys, his spiritual condition of blindness. Yes, he went physically blind when he encountered Jesus, but that caused him to see what was really going on in him. This is where every one of us in this room can relate. We all either have been saved out of or right now are in the middle of spiritual blindness. We cannot see, we cannot perceive, and do not understand who Jesus is. What's interesting is that this idea of blindness is what was prophesied about God's people in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, uh, 28 to 29, you almost see Paul fulfilling these, these prophecies of what were going to come true. Uh, so Deuteronomy 28, 
uh, 20, I'll read it off the screen. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday. Remember when Paul was blinded? It was right in the middle of the day. As the blind grope in darkness. He goes on. And you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. That's a pretty bleak picture of God pronouncing that over his people in their rebellion and in their darkness. But this is exactly what happens to the apostle Paul. He's groping around in blindness. Uh, Similar thing said in Isaiah 59 verse 10 says this about his people, that we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. So Paul being struck dead in the middle of the day seems to uh, be the same condition that fell upon God's people, Israel. And so his spiritual blindness is recounted, but what's interesting is what he says it is. So look at verse, verses 3 to 5 of Acts 22, and, and I'll just bring summary uh, statements out of that. His spiritual blindness is accounted for in him having a heritage, that he was proud of. He says, I'm a Jew. His spiritual blindness came out in that he was knowledgeable of the law. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, and I was educated in a strict manner of the law. His blindness showed up in his, that he was zealous for God. His blindness showed, showed up when he pushed back on anything that threatened against the law. He was persecuting the way of Jesus when it popped up and felt like it was pushing against the law. He was entrusted with responsibilities of the high priest. So let's review. What's his blindness? Is that he was knowledgeable, he was zealous, and he had a great heritage, and he was trusted with very important tasks. That was the nature of his spiritual blindness. That doesn't sound like our version of spiritual blindness. We, like, we think of spiritual blindness as we act in ways that are obviously in, uh, in way outside of God's will. We're spiritually blind. We go our own way. But the Apostle Paul, his spiritual blindness was defined as togetherness. He had his life tied up nicely He was doing good things that were honorable among his peers and his friends. His his, uh, spiritual blindness was tons of action, but it was misguided. In 1 Timothy 1, he even says, I acted in ignorance in unbelief. And he calls himself the foremost of sinners because he thought that his own record of righteousness would earn him a place in God's presence. We tend to think of it the opposite. Those with the worst behavior, they're the ones that are far off. Paul is saying, I had the best behavior and I was the chief of sinners. Are you one in this room that has your life tidied up, but it has nothing to do with faith in Christ? that you're doing good things, you're an honorable person, you put your record uh, as the way to define yourself, and people look at you uh, with with eyes of, uh, of respect, and you feel good about yourself because your record matters, but yet it has nothing to do with faith in Christ. 
Paul would say. Paul would say that was his place. His place of togetherness was the very thing that kept him from understanding who Jesus was and from surrendering to him. Romans 10, he says, speaking of Israel, who was just like him, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. Basically, I perform well, and I build my records so that I'm accepted. And if that's you today, that is no hope at all. And you are one of the foremost away from the living God. That's what Paul's saying. He said he was blind and he needed to see rightly. And so it's the experience of seeing Jesus and encountering him that causes him to go physically blind, but yet he can spiritually see as that happens. Because in that, he finds not just blindness, but forgiveness. So we're witnesses to the mercy of God in that he finds forgiveness. Look at verse 12. We're going to look at verse 12 to 16 and camp out on verse 16. So, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, uh, why, wh- and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Look at verse 16. That's the way of salvation. If you're one that's here and you're saying, wait, I've built my whole life on my own record. What do I do? If you're one that says, you know what, I might know who God is, but I've never cried out to him. I've never surrendered my life to him. Ananias looks at Paul, and, 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 or Saul changed his name to Paul. You know, rise, be baptized, wash away your sins. How? By calling on his name. Think about it. Paul's blindness was built on his own pride, that he built the life that he wanted, his own record. He was, he was uh, confident in himself. That was his blindness. What's the thing that counteracts that is the humility that you have to cry out to someone else for salvation. Calling out in his name negates the pride of spiritual blindness. It's the exact opposite of trusting in your own Paul had to see himself in desperate need of a rescue in order for him to call on the name of Jesus. God's mercy to him becomes the message that he preaches all over the world. And so it's true of Paul, it's true of any of us. In order to declare a a message of mercy and a message of grace, you must be gripped by God's grace and God's mercy. We are not made right by our own works. We're not made right by our own record. We are made right by calling out to Jesus and him washing away 
our sin. And when we experience that from blindness to forgiveness, from blindness to being able to see, from death to life, from a heart that it doesn't see the things of God to all of a sudden understanding that we want to tell of it. So when we experience these amazingly good gifts of God, it doesn't just stay there. We become not just from blindness to forgiveness, but we become the witnesses of God. We see a witness in Paul. Look at verse 17 to 21. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you, meaning that Paul did exactly what they did to him. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he, Jesus, said to me, Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That that basically Paul is being sent to those who are outside, those who are far off, far away to the Gentiles, as Isaiah 57 would say. That, but what's interesting, in, in verses 14 and 15, we get an interesting word that's used very rarely in the Greek. So in verse 14, it uh, says that the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. That idea of appointing or has chosen you to know his will, has sent you out uh, in verse 15, you will be a witness for him of what you have seen and what you have heard. That he's appointed you to know and chosen you to be the one that goes. It's a really obscure word in the Greek, and guess where else it is used It's in the Greek translation of God's conversation with Moses at the burning bush. You remember that time where God comes and shows himself to Moses and says, Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to, you know, get my people out of slavery. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh and you're going to, you know, have them let my people go. And Moses says what? Hey, can you choose someone else? Can you appoint or send someone else? The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this exact word. I I would imagine Paul knows exactly what that word is in the Old Testament, or the Greek translation of that. And he uses it here to describe that God chose him to go to the Gentiles. God chose him. And it's even better when he says the God of our fathers. He's rooting his call as a witness in the move of God, that God chose him to go. And just like the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, he's brought into the presence of God in encounter with Jesus, and then he goes out as God's messenger. Just like Isaiah, who, who um, his sins were atoned for, Isaiah was, and then he was sent out. God uh, is here purifying Paul of his sin, and then he is a witness of what he has seen and what he has heard. Are you someone who struggles to think of like, you know what, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know what to say to somebody. I don't know how to tell people about, about 
the God that I love, the one who has saved me. Do you struggle with that at times? I think what uh, we could just take from this, yes, this was Paul's uh, calling on his life, but do this. Simply tell people what you have seen God do. Simply tell people what you have seen God or heard God say that you've read in his word. Because Paul went to tell people to be a witness of what he has seen and what he has heard. Let the Holy Spirit deal with all the fruit of that. We just get to reflect that. I think we get so caught up in, I've got to know all these Bible verses, and I've got to know this gospel delivery, I've got to know this and know that. Just tell people what you've seen God do, what you, how you've seen God heal you, how has God saved you, what is he doing in your life, and how has he spoken through his word. And God uses that to transform people and families and the world. We don't have time to totally go into uh, all the ways that God delivered uh, Paul after this, but he becomes a witness for uh, the mercy of God, but then he was delivered by the hand of God, and, and, and you'll see this, we saw it earlier in 21, we'll see it in 22, that the very people that are going to imprison him are the ones who actually free him. They see the Roman soldiers running towards an uprising, and Paul st- get, stops getting beaten. The Roman soldier in, in late in 22 realized Paul's a Roman citizen, and he steps back and he's like, what are we doing here? That God is delivering Paul through some very interesting circumstances. He was rescued by the hands of the ones who would ultimately imprison him. It's this kind of conundrum of uh, what does it look like for God to save us? At times, he uses the most unlikely of sources— he used Roman soldiers to save, uh, save Paul and to spare him this day. And so though there's a physical deliverance, what, it, it even points to the sense of what spiritual deliverance would be, that he calls on the name of the Lord. He's calling on the one. How did Paul consider Jesus before Jesus encountered him on the road? Paul would consider Jesus cursed. Why? Because according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, uh, that he says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree or basically crucified on a cross. And so, so before he encounters Jesus on that road, he considers Jesus accursed, but yet he is saved by the one who th- he thinks is cursed himself. So he is Uh, He cries out to the one who he considers cursed so that he might be saved from the curse falling on him. And and it's the deliverance of God that isn't just in uh, saving and getting Paul out of a bad circumstance, but it is the deliverance of God that when the most self-righteous or the most wanton cries out to the living God, he hears He responds, he washes people of their sins, and he grants them salvation. Have you come to the place where you have cried out to Jesus for your salvation? If not, maybe today is the day of salvation for you, that you would cry out to Jesus 
so that you might be saved. You might be saying, you know what, I did that 30 years ago. But have you lost the zeal of speaking and telling people about God's amazing grace? Because his grace comes to us, just like that song say, it's, it says, it's his breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to him. He gives us his grace so that we get to tell people and reflect it to the people around us. Are you doing that? Have you lost zeal for his grace? Maybe have you never trusted in him uh, at any point in your life? He became a curse for us so that we might be saved. Let's pray. Uh, God, use uh, all of this for your glory. You are holy, you are righteous, and you save sinners. Ones that feel like we can build our record of righteousness. Uh, Those of us who feel like uh, we just want to do life on our own terms and we want to do whatever we want to do. God, forgive us wherever we are. Come and meet us there. God, hear our cries for mercy. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.